Section 3 of G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns The New Witness, 1922 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Craig Abbott G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns The New Witness, 1922 By G. K. Chesterton The Future of the Flag About the time of the worst barbarian pillage of the shrines and civic wealth of Belgium, I happened to find myself in direct controversy with a German propagandist. I was startled at the staleness of some of his charges. Of course, he said that ours was a mercenary army that could not understand military necessities. He also actually said that we were a nation of shopkeepers. Of course, I made the obvious reply that I preferred it to a nation of shoplifters. But now, in a more serene atmosphere, I am ready to consider the original charge on its own merits. I am ready to judge calmly whether the phrase about a nation of shopkeepers is really too harsh a censure. And judged calmly, at the present moment, it is clear that it is much too high a compliment. It would be, by comparison, a utopia of liberty, equality, and fraternity if England were really a nation of shopkeepers, in the sense of every man keeping his own shop. There was a time when this was much more nearly the case, and it was a time when England, if not at her best, was perhaps at her strongest. When men like Clive and Wolfe, as much of the middle classes as Johnson and Richardson, were gaining an empire by winning fights instead of losing it by waving flags. It was not my utopia, and I do not think England so enviable, even when she was a nation of shopkeepers, as when she was a nation of yeomen. But precisely because the shopkeepers did own their shops, they had something of the sturdiness and natural dignity of yeomen. The last corruption of commercialism which is called capitalism, comes when the shopkeepers have lost their shops, as much as the yeomen have lost their farms. It has already come. Under capitalism, few men can be keepers of shops or keepers of anything, in the true sense, for they are not given anything, as the children say, to keep. The rich only lend them houses and tools and land to use, just as the rich only lend them money. And in all cases, the effect is bankruptcy and servitude. They are not keepers of anything, except occasionally keepers of lunatics or of lions at the zoo. They seldom truly attain the highest state of being shopkeepers, or the still more dizzy and divine elevation of being innkeepers. They have become more and more men serving for a salary or a wage, the few great shopkeepers who own the great shops. If the capitalistic process is completed, we shall become a race of servants, with all the vices and, what is almost worse, 
the virtues of servants, smooth and orderly and supple and superficial. We shall no longer be a nation of shopkeepers. We shall become rather a nation of shopwalkers. It may be that the apotheosis of the shopwalker will after all be interrupted by the unsympathetic appearance of the shop steward. That is a matter with which I shall deal when I resume the main thread of my recent attempt at a theoretical study of Bolshevism. Here I have another reason for noting the three stages of that descent. Distributism or a nation of yeomen. Competition or a nation of shopkeepers. Capitalism or a nation of shopwalkers. Although the second is immeasurably better than the third, it is true that the second practically led to the third. It is possible that it officially led to the third. The yeoman spirit gradually died out of the shopkeepers, and they would no longer fight even for their own shops. And this can be sharply tested by taking the very imagery of the old yeoman ideal, its badges or its ballads, and imagine them applied to the more recent merchant, let alone to the modern millionaire. And we could hardly find a better symbol of the whole business than the recent discussion about the national flag, about the combination that we call the Union Jack, as compared with that simpler flag that would have flown from the mass of the merchant ships of the Middle Ages. The question has been raised in connection with the reconstructed relations of England and Ireland. The red saltire in the Union Jack is supposed to be St. Patrick's Cross, but some are doubtful about whether it has much to do with St. Patrick. Of the three national patrons, St. Patrick is certainly the most vivid saint, but among the heraldic traditions, his is the least vivid cross. The silver saltire of St. Andrew, on its azure ground, has a splendid history. The Scots called it the Blue Blanket, and it was carried as the flag of the guilds, or popular trade brotherhoods, of Edinburgh, in battle and still more often in riot. One of the Scottish kings mournfully commented on the democratic militancy of the guilds, saying that, if they be in anything controlled, up goes the blue blanket. And anyone who will look at the single cross of St. Andrew, or for that matter at the single cross of St. George, as displayed on the simple medieval banner, will see how much better the very idea of a banner was understood in medieval times. In this, as in most other things, it is not merely that the medieval craft was more beautiful than the modern, but that the medieval craft was very much more practical than the modern. The plain cross red on white, or white on blue, fulfills the first idea of an ensign or standard, which is to be easily seen and recognized. Both those national flags show clearly at a great distance, as they did when they shone over against each other at Flodden or Bannockburn. In comparison, the Union Jack is more like a piece of camouflage than a piece of heraldry. For the moment, however, the flag is in a double sense merely a symbol, and it is a symbol of the simpler patriotism that existed before the yeomen even became shopkeepers.
The disentanglement of the triple cross detaches for us, among other things, the definite idea of St. George. It is a satisfactory thought that there are three saints on the Union Jack, but though it is a satisfactory thought, I do not think it is a very common or customary thought. I doubt if many people ever think of halos and holiness when looking at the Union Jack, and we are tempted to say that too many saints spoil the sanctity. But we are in some sense bound to think of St. George when looking at St. George's cross. And the more we think about St. George, the less satisfied we shall be with three stages of the historical transition I have noted. The shopkeepers of the early 19th century were patriots. The clerks of the early 20th century are still patriots, but there is an increasing sense of division and incongruity between the patriots and the patron. It is not quite so inevitable an image to conceive the shopkeeper shouting, St. George for Mary England, bring out the ledger, or Adsit Anglis Sanctus Georgius, and the next article, madam. And as for the modern capitalist of the big stores, there seems no particular reason why he should devote himself to St. George, or feel anything but a slight embarrassment in the presence of the cross of St. George. As he avowedly admires the stores because they are large, labyrinthine, and able to absorb the things around them, it would seem more natural that he should admire the dragon. The secret of the matter, I fancy, might be found in a rather simple verbal inversion. Those English crusaders who chose the protection of this champion during King Richard's romantic raid on the Palestinian coast were doubtless very ready to cry, St. George for England. But they also meant something else, which might be expressed by crying, England for St. George. They did not merely mean that heaven was supporting whatever the English were doing. They also meant that the English were then supporting what heaven was doing. It was a case of gesta de per anglos, as well as per francos. In other words, they recognized some idea of shaping the course of England to a standard outside England, if it were only in paradise. But in fact, it was not only in paradise, it was also in Christendom. The Englishman was to approximate in his own way to the common standard of the Christian soldier. When we recalled the legend that King Arthur had been the universal arbiter of chivalry, we made that chivalry universal. Whatever is vulgar or evil in patriotism was obviated by the idea of an external and objective standard. It was not merely that St. George was sure to support Englishmen, but that Englishmen were bound to support St. George. The loss of that conception of England for St. George has been the origin of all our corruptions, which have culminated in capitalism. Our wandering began with things much more spirited and picturesque, with little ships sailing to new worlds and seeking glory as well as gold. But there was no standard to bring it back to sanity. There was no image or clear ideal that we could feel the danger of growing more and more unlike. The Englishman only followed his nose and had forgotten every other finger post. 
He had only a confused sense of the glory of getting more and more of something, and hardly knew how to test whether it was really something good. His empire became a patchwork of colors, as his flag became a patchwork of crosses. But he no longer even knew that the cross was a cross. He no longer even realized that the patron saint had ever been a saint, thinking him quite sufficiently honored by having been asked to be a patron. End of The Future of the Flag Recording by Craig Abbott